Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. It's the 19th anniversary of 9-11, this generation's Pearl Harbor Day, and surprisingly, there are people online and in the news talking about how it's starting to feel distant. This week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnson and Chris Wernowski. You guys are both considerably younger than I am. Do you feel like 9-11 is becoming a distant memory? I certainly do not. No. Every time I see that kind of bold blue sky, that September day when it's quiet, I, I think about what it felt like. It's hard because it's it's so ingrained in our culture. You know, I mean, we recognize it every year in a, in kind of a big way. And so they replay the footage and, you know, all of the news stories from that time sort of make their way through social media again. So it's it's hard to sort of put it in the past. And, you know, and we're still embroiled in the two wars that we started after, you know, 9-11. So, you know, it's it's a little difficult to put out of memory. Yeah, I just I was really surprised at the number of pieces I read. Part of it is because the commemorations are much muted this year because of COVID, but that's to keep people from getting sick and dying. But there were people talking. And what struck me is, is, you know, I was born about two decades after Pearl Harbor and my whole life, you know, every year, Pearl Harbor Day, everybody talked about it. And my feeling is that every year on 9-11, we will talk about it. It was one of those moments in American history. So I was just surprised. I guess it's part of the the COVID malaise. Everybody's just feeling out of sorts. I, I agree with that. And because we call it 9-11, like you could never forget the date. Yeah, well, I know. But also it's, you know, these things tend to hook themselves to specific generations. You know, we have to we have to also consider, you know, all of the traumatic things that have happened to subsequent generations, whether it's our, you know, all of the Black Lives Matter issues, the the things that brought that to light, all the school shootings, all of the, you know, the pandemic. Other generations have their thing that they think is considerably awful. And, you know, 9-11 happens to be, you know, in Laura and my age groups, uh, sort of orbit. And, you know, they're, they're, you know, so yeah, I think I naturally I, this time, those things tend I, to, I, I use Pearl Harbor. I was 20 years past Pearl Harbor, but that, that was very much imprinted in my brain mm-hmm. by the generations that, 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 that it was important to, you know, Kennedy was killed when I was what, three, too, and that was imprinted on my brain. I'm I'm not sure that just because you weren't alive during it, you you lose sight of it. I, I anyway, we have got to move I, on. Well, we I just, the podcast it'll be, <laughs> I don't know what my kids know about September 11th, so I should probably talk to them about that today. Okay, let's begin. For six hours or so on Thursday, who was the replacement for Dr. Amy Acton, who was a hero to much of Ohio, but a villain to anti-mask coronavirus conspiracy theorists? After those six hours, what happened? Chris Warnowski, this is one of those strange, strange stories, and the news continued to be updated overnight. So walk us through 
the whole chronology, please. Right. So during his two o'clock briefing, Mike DeWine announced that the state had finally found a replacement for uh, Dr. Amy Acton, who resigned earlier this year. As people remember, she was sort of the, the public face of our initial coronavirus response. And he announced that they, the state had hired a woman by the name of Dr. Joan Duvi, uh, I believe is how it's pronounced. And she was the current director of the public health for South Carolina's uh, Department of Health and Environmental Control. And she was expected to start her job around October 1st. But by about 8.30 p.m., DeWine had announced that she had withdrawn her name, citing, quote, personal reasons and um, he said that the the you know that his administration would continue to search for a full time director of the Ohio Department of Health. After that news broke, their socially conservative activists uh, shared an online resume for Duvid that showed that in the early 1980s she worked as a volunteer coordinator for Planned Parenthood. As you know, Dewine is a Republican who staunchly opposes abortion and was sort of brought into office in 2018 with heavy support from anti-abortion advocacy groups. And Aaron Bayer, who is the president of the Citizens for Community Values, wrote, seriously, how did this happen? How did a former Planned Parenthood volunteer coordinator get serious consideration as our health director? But Dan Tierney told us that DeWine did know about it. She also, in the intervening years, has worked for a number of Republican administrations, including that of Vice President Mike Pence. So, so it's odd. I mean, it seems like if DeWine knew about this and hired her, he wouldn't order her out because this this came up. He would know it would come up. Is it just she she saw this kerfluffle beginning to build, knew what happened to Acton and just bailed? Yeah. And it's you know, when we say knew what happened to Acton, it's worth noting that, you know, as as the shutdown here progressed, Acton was you know, the sort of center of a lot of controversy. There were armed protesters on her street at in front of her house. And, you know, and, and while it's nobody's ever said it out loud, I, you know, it, you have to think that that wears on your psyche a little bit. It makes you decide whether you want this job or not. So the woman that they, they had offered this position to who withdrew has not said anything publicly about her decision to withdraw from this, but, you know, it's, it's, you have to think about that in in the sense of 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 in the context of of what happened to Amy Acton. We are living in one sad age. I mean, it's this is just it's you know they they went out they found somebody who's obviously qualified beyond belief. You know, apparently was excited to come, and then this explodes and it and it's all over. It's embarrassing for wine. I mean, look, you know, and nobody points out the fact that uh, you know Mike DeWine was on. Uh, currently indicted criminal Steve Bannon's podcast back in April. And, and you know, it, it's what's crazy about this to me is that during this whole pandemic, Mike DeWine has time and time again pointed to immense systemic failures within our public health system as one of the leading problems that they faced when trying to deal with this pandemic. And what what's sad about how organizations like Planned Parenthood are framed in the conservative mindset is that abortion services are a fraction, a tiny fraction of the services that they provide specifically to women because our health systems are broken by a government that has refused to address this stuff. 
And so if, if this is truly the reason that this woman left this position, it is a really, really, really sad thing to well, say about this state and yeah, about but, our government. But DeWine knew, Chris. So it's not it, this, this doesn't sound like it's DeWine changing his mind. He knew if he knew and he hired her. He was not holding the Planned Parenthood. But, but again, it, but again, it's these groups that support him. You know, I mean, citizens for community values. I mean, what are they? You know, and and what is this outrage? You know, we should be thankful somebody wants to take this job. You know, given that apparently yeah, the was, last person who had it was scared away by armed protesters. Yeah, and, I was I was surprised <laughs> that that somebody was willing to take it because it was it was so ugly. And it's and I mean, maybe. It's, I mean, think Maybe about it. We have side. not heard. We have not heard from a public health director in months. We have not had yeah. somebody in that position. The interim director has never appeared on television. I don't think to talk to us about it. And you know, in other developed countries, you know, it's not the politicians they put on TV to talk about this to us. It's the yeah, scientists. Except, and- except Mike DeWine was very offended by the attacks on Amy Acton, and it might be a deliberate move. He said, hey, you want to attack somebody? Attack me. I'm the elected guy. So it might be a a very deliberate effort to protect people and take the flack himself. I don't know if you've ever read the Facebook comments on the during the briefing. It is a pack of lunatics saying the most offensive and horrible things it's like these are our countrymen this is really ugly I know, okay man. well calling very... lunatics is offensive to actual lunatics. <laughs> <laughs> okay good line you're listening to this week in the cle how did summit county get back into the red on ohio governor mike dewine's color-coded coronavirus risk map and what happened at a fraternal club there? Laura Johnston, we, we've been doing okay in, in uh, Northeast Ohio over the past month or so, getting, getting things under control. And then Summit County jumps off the map as a big red blot. What's going on there? Yeah, Summit had been orange or level two since July, since before Cuyahoga County went down. And I think this is the first time one of our Northeast Ohio counties has gone from red to orange and then back up to red again. So apparently they've had an uptick in emergency room visits for COVID-like symptoms. That's one of the the checklist things for Mike DeWine's administration on the alert system. They've also had a jump in hospitalizations. This is a pretty small number. They went from two to seven in a week. And that was, I believe, the last week of August. So that triggered um, going red. The other counties that are red are Butler, Montgomery. Those two have been red for a while. Mercer, Preble, and Putnam. So I think we're down to six. That might be the lowest number of red counties we've had statewide yet. DeWine talked a bit about a fraternal club where two people got everybody sick. (laughs) What was that about? Really sad. And he announces these things every once in a while. And he says he's not sharing them to shame people, just to let us know. But two people visited this fraternal club uh, that has a bar and a restaurant. It's a nonprofit. They were contagious. Then they spread COVID to nine, uh, spread COVID-19 to 12 people. Those are employees, club members, and family members ranging in age from 29 to 81. What's really sad about this is that four people have been hospitalized. Two are seriously ill just because they went to this club. We don't, we don't know where it was and exactly how it happened, but the idea is that you need to be really careful, wear your mask and social distance. And be careful about those restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I was going to say the health department in Summit County attributed a lot of this to starting school again. Akron schools are not going in person, but there are a bunch of suburban schools in Summit County, including my alma mater, Revere, that are going, I believe, five days a week. So we'll have to see what happens with those schools if they're going to back down now. Yeah, I saw a story. I can't remember which state it was. It might have been South Carolina, where a week after school started, one of the teachers died. This is not going to end well. It was a bad idea, and I'm sure see them all working remotely in the near future. You're listening to This Week in the CLE, the one podcast in Ohio where you get analysis you cannot find anywhere else. Why is President Trump meddling with the Ohio election system? Chris Warnowski, it is like clockwork every four years. (laughs) Our entire election system gets thrown into the courts at the last minute as we approach the beginning of voting. And yesterday, the president himself entered the fray. What's going on? Yeah, it's like uh, it's like, wow, appointing a bunch of federal judges during your term is might (laughs) might actually pay off. This was kind of expected, though. Yesterday, the the administration or his I'm sorry, his campaign jumped into the legal fight over Ohio's election, seeking to prevent a push um, by uh, some voting rights groups to have multiple drop boxes for absentee ballots in counties across the state. Uh, if you're a regular listener of the podcast, you know that we, we've talked about this before, that there have been a couple of lawsuits filed challenging this uh, one drop box per county rule that um, Frank LaRose has has said is, is perfectly acceptable for us. Um, I think a lot of the concern is that it from these groups is that they believe it will harm voter turnout in larger metropolitan counties and makes it difficult for people who don't want to vote in person, but who don't trust the mail to get to the one centralized location uh, to drop off their absentee ballot. So let me me ask you, let let me ask you. So, so Trump has been very vocal about, he doesn't trust the absentee system in the mail. He's Mm -hmm. undermined confidence in the mail. Actually, some have said sabotaged it by cutting money and they pulled out machines and things. What does he have against drop boxes? I mean, that's one. I get my ballot. I drive to the drop box. I put it in. What? Why is there? I mean, I get why they don't want people to have ease of voting in in cities because they're Democratic and it helps them win. But that can't be the reason you give to a judge. What is the argument, the legal argument against having more than one drop box? It's the argument is that they're they're sort of hooking it on the idea of security that that have that if you increase the number of locations you're going to make the process less secure that there's there's more you know more opportunity for people to meddle in uh with the drop boxes um which you know i mean historically there's really i mean i don't know that there's any evidence that such a thing has happened so you know all of the all of the election meddling has been done through hacking which you know our our uh, homeland security is just decided not to pay any attention to this year. <laughs> right, right. But there yeah, are- Microsoft put out a really frightening thing about that issue. Well, look, let's stay with this for a minute because because mm-hmm. I want let, let's talk pragmatically about w- what could happen at a Dropbox when, when they're talking about security. So say it's at a police station or a library or somewhere. And what are they saying? That people will go and steal the ballots? That would help Republicans because there'd be Democratic ballots that are getting stolen. What's the fear of it? You can't it's not like you can get extra ballots and just put them in there. They all have to tie back to a registered voter. You only get the ballot by 
by proving that you're a registered voter at the address that it's sent to. So what's the danger? What's the real security breach that could happen at a Dropbox? I don't know. I think you're trying to apply logic where logic <laughs> is not necessary. But LaRose actually responded to this lawsuit in saying that it actually puts a, an unconstitutional burden on residents' rights to vote. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I mean, to be honest, it, it, again, there's, there's nothing that they have pointed to as an example of, of what they're claiming is going to happen. So I think because on face, it's it creates, bogus, right? It's but, it, but again, it's bogus. like you asked me to say, like, what's the argument? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think they have one. Dan Polster, who's the the federal judge that's going to hear this, is a pretty even minded person. You know, I mean, he's the guy. He's the federal judge that was put in charge of all of this opioid legislate or these all of this opioid uh, litigation, and and he, you know, he he has a reputation of being a pretty thoughtful. Uh, and deliberate judge. So, you know, I think this will get a fair airing, at least at the district level. Now, what happens when this goes to the appeals court uh, is a different story. But bear in mind, there is also a state level lawsuit related to this, too. I know. But um, look, man, I you can make a really good argument that living in Cuyahoga County, it's unfair because there's more than a million people per one Dropbox. And we have counties in Ohio where there's 50,000 people per Dropbox. That's just, that's not equality. That's not equal treatment of all the voters. And to argue that preserving one per county preserves equality, it's just not well, true. Let, let, so, me, let me put this out there. You you live in Cleveland Heights. How How long does it take you to drive to our office, which is close to the Board of Elections office? On, well, a, on, a, on a normal day. Pre-COVID, it was a half hour. Now it's probably, you know, 16 right. so, minutes. So, but so, I live but, in Cleveland Heights. You, you I, I, I don't live in Chagrin Falls. Right. I don't live in Westlake. That's a and lot farther away. you also have a away. car. So, yeah. you know, you have to think about this in terms of, of, of people who don't have access to cars, people who rely on public transportation, which is also you know, kind of spotty when you're in the middle of a pandemic. The burden that we have sort of put on, you know, poor people and and people in in communities that don't have access to public transportation and communities where people don't have ready access to cars, you know, takes you a half an hour to drive to work. Imagine if you had to take a bus to work every day. So I know that, that's I, look, the argument. <laughs> the reason I wanted to, to go through this in more detail than than we might do normally is to show just how ridiculous the challenge to this is, both by the president, the campaign, the Republican National Committee, the state Republicans and LaRose. I, this uh, is bogus. And and it's trying to prevent the ease of voting that people need because of COVID. A lot of people don't trust the mail because of what the president <laughs> has done to the mail. Right. The alternative, if you don't want to vote in person, is the Dropbox, and we're right. making that ridiculously the word, difficult. The word we're not saying here is disenfranchisement. This is disenfranchisement. And, you know, we should do a better job of calling it what it is. You know, I, I defy anybody who's listening to this to make an argument in favor of a single box in the cities. My email is cquinn, C-Q-U-I-N-N, at cleveland.com. I welcome the argument. Oh, you're listening yeah. I'm glad to I'm this off week. next week. <laughs> <laughs> you're listening to this week in the CLE.
Republicans and Democrats both spoke Thursday in favor of repealing House Bill 6, the nuclear plant bailout forged in a $60 million bribery scheme funded by First Energy. So, Laura, that's pretty cool that you had Democrats and Republicans both trying to get rid of a stinky deal. Talk, talk us through what they're saying. Yeah, not only do we have Democrats and Republicans working together, the House and the Senate are working together. They've got the exact same bill that would repeal all of House Bill 6. So Republican state reps Laura Laney's and Dave Greenspan, used to be a county council person, county councilman in Cuyahoga County, and then Democratic state reps Mike Skindell and Michael O'Brien, they all testified before the Ohio House Select Committee on Energy Policy and Oversight about their bills. And obviously, this would undo all of the bailout for uh, First Energy Corporation with their nuclear power plants. Lainey's, who she represents a suburban Columbus district, she said that Energy Harbor moved earlier this year to buy back hundreds of millions of dollars worth of its stock. So she's asking whether the company actually needs the money. And Greenspan is really big on this part of the bill that First Energy gets to charge ratepayers whatever it needs to make sure <laughs> brings in $978 million a year. And he's saying that's really not fair. A lot of businesses would like that business model. Well, what what I was heartened to see in this was the argument that they never saw evidence that First Energy needed the billion dollar plus that it was getting for this. You know, First Energy has broken its company into parts now so they can claim they're not our nuclear plants anymore, but they were when this whole scheme was running. And it seemed I was from the beginning, it was like they never showed you their books. They claim, oh, that's confidential, but give us a billion plus. It was very heartening to see the legislators saying, you know, we have serious questions about whether they needed this money at all. So so if they repeal it and then replace it, the first energy and its successor businesses that they created to duck criticism are going to have some explaining to do. And I can't wait for, to see it because my bet is they didn't need billion a billion dollar plus to bail out these lame plants. They probably didn't need anything because they started rewarding investors as soon as they got the money. But even if they needed something, it's far less than they got. This is a, a crucial moment uh, for how the legislator breaks free of the control that this utility has had over them. For a bunch of years, John Caniglia detailed the way they use their money and their muscle all these years. And we're tackling now to see there's some evidence that their rates are way higher than they should be because of that muscle and money. And we're going to put a real spotlight on whether they got way more money on the backs of Ohioans than they should have. So good stuff. I can't wait to see how this plays out. I hope they follow through and repeal that stinky deal. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the status of the major bridge project on Interstate 480 over the Cuyahoga River? Laura Johnston, a whole lot of people were driving on this at one point, but during the coronavirus, a whole lot of people aren't. And the project has continued and it's hitting a pretty big milestone this weekend. What's going on? So the bad news is we have lane closures starting this weekend. But the good news is because we've gotten to the stage of this $227 million expansion project. So there's a new third bridge that's been built in between the two existing bridges over the Cuyahoga River Valley. Together, these are all known as the Valley View Bridge. So now, now that we've got the new bridge, it's time to rehab the old structures. So starting Sunday, eastbound traffic is going to have to use the new bridge 
Uh, that's going to last all the way through the fall of next year. And then the crews will be working on the old eastbound bridge. Um, they're going to shift traffic one direction at a time. The whole thing should be done by 2024. Yeah, that's one of those bridges that scares people who have a fear of heights because you are. It's like being in the sky. Uh, but, you know, I have I don't think I've driven on that bridge since the COVID began. So I haven't seen the progress at all. Uh, so this won't affect me. And I doubt it's going to have much in the way of traffic tie ups because. Yeah, it'll be interesting, interesting to see like the traffic counts on there, because that used to be a real backup area where, you know, 77 intersects with 480. Um, and just like we were talking about other traffic counts earlier on the podcast this week, that um, just people are not driving as much. So maybe we won't even need all of these road expansion projects. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are black students at Kent State University saying about the school's response to the repeated racist messages painted on a campus rock? Chris Warnowski, this seems like it's something that the school could put a stop to pretty darn quickly. And the black students are not happy about the school's response. Yeah. So for people who don't know, uh, Kent State uh, placed this rock at the base of Hilltrop Drive on the north west side of campus in 1972 and uh, it's a thing that like campus groups and sports teams and things like that they paint it with stuff and you know i i don't know if your guys' colleges had something like this we had a statue of our mascot which was a bulldog that everybody like all of the student organizations would paint their colors and stuff from time to time um but over the past couple of weeks uh i think there it's been three times now um the university has had to clean it up because there uh, were racist messages that were painted on it. And um, there has been some talk and and some discussion about maybe possibly just removing it outright. Um, The campus group black United students on yesterday uh, said they'd submitted a list of demands to the university, urging it to find uh, better ways to make students of color, particularly black students feel comfortable um, that list also included pushing uh, Kent to up, update its policies. So when incidents like this happen, the students uh, who are responsible can be held accountable. It's interesting because Kent is kind of a, you know, we've had some some right wing activist groups like Turning Point and the the young woman who likes to parade around with her guns. You know, it, it, there's been some you know, sort of right wing, you know, the, it, when when the safe space college campus debate was sort of, you know, really going on. It, it, we, we had seen some incursion of that, but, you know, the, the, the race stuff is sort of, you know, kind of an ugly cousin of all of that. And I was just going to say, the, sorry, thank you. Uh, the issue yesterday, I think that Alexis Oatman wrote about, and there was a protest was that it wasn't just the racist messages on the rock. They wanted more. Yeah. They wanted Kent to do something more than just talk about removing it. And so you're right. It is a cultural issue and they want to see that their voices are being heard. Right. It's, it's, it's that thing where you say, Oh, well, we'll just stop saying bad things or we'll stop doing bad things, but you're not really addressing the. Yeah, removing the, the rock is not going to change the culture, the, the, the cultural issues that, that lead to, you know, somebody spray painting awful things on a rock. But removing the rock seems like a good first step. I mean, you know, the, what's odd is it's so easy to have cameras and things. I mean, if they wanted to keep the damn rock, they could just move it closer to where a security guard is and put some cameras around it to make sure that nobody ever does that again. 
Uh, it does seem like it's kind of a tepid response, but you're right, Laura, it's a cultural problem. And unless they start to address it from a, a systemic kind of standpoint, it's not going to fix anything. So, yeah, I mean, we, we think of, you know, I mean, think about it when we, we, when we elected our first black president, we go, well, racism's over, you know, and <laughs> are, you know, are, you know, are, is removing a rock really going to address what is at the, the real root of this problem? And, and you're both right. I, it won't. And, and it's a good first step. And, and, and frankly, if, if people are upset about it, then, you know, maybe hold your fellow students accountable and, you know, and, and be on the side that says this is kind of stuff is wrong. Simple. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE and that's going to do it for another week of episodes of our news discussion podcast. I hope, I hope Chris and Laura, you're going to do something fun this weekend. I'm off on this week, so I am. I'm going out of town. I'm. I'm really excited to leave this, leave the region for a little bit, and I'm going to be responsible and distanced and everything that you're supposed to be. And I'm sure, Laura, you'll be brazenly going to restaurants, even though the recent study showed going to restaurants is a key way people are getting. We're the trying to figure out how to have this safe, socially distant bridging ceremony for our Girl Scout troop. So that's my big project this weekend. <laughs> What's, what's a bridging ceremony? When they go from daisies to brownies, so they're in second grade now, so we're spreading the kids out and doing helium balloons, and yeah. Hopefully it okay. won't rain. Our resident mom on the podcast, <laughs> once again with a mom story. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We will return on Monday with another week of episodes. <laughs>